The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Sensei Koshin Paley Ellison, is the co-founder with his husband, Sensei Robert Chodo Campbell, of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, which is the first Zen Buddhist-based organization to offer fully accredited ACPE clinical chaplaincy training in the United States. He's the author of a number of books, but his newest book is Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, Wake Up. Sensei Koshin, welcome to Essential Conversations. Delighted to be with you, Rabbi. Oh, I'm happy to talk with you for a number of reasons, not the least of which is we both come from Jewish backgrounds. We both went into the Zen world. You stayed. I didn't. <laughs> what, what's wrong with me? Why, why, did, why couldn't I stick it out on the cushions? Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about your spiritual autobiography, how you came to Zen from Judaism. Yeah, so I grew up um, from a series of integration. I think my I come from an ancestry of some rabbis and a lot of folks who were fleeing pogroms and the Holocaust. And my parents were their form of Jewish activism was around service. And so they were deeply engaged. My dad was part of the war on poverty. He was one of the 50 lawyers who was brought to work with low income and poor people and advocate for them. And my mother was one of the founders of the National Organization of Women. And so they were very involved with social action. And that was kind of their form of spirituality, actually. And we, you know, celebrated nominally uh, Jewish holidays. But my mother was really interested in Japanese culture. And so we had lots of Japanese art around the house. And when I was eight years old, I was looking at a National Geographic magazine with my grandfather. And I was flipping through it and they had lost native tribes and all these different things. And there was this picture of a Zen Buddhist monk wearing his Arya Rogasa hat, 
but just this big giant hat that you can barely see his face. And I remember all the people in the film, in the photograph were blurred because they were moving so quickly, except this monk. And reading under the caption said Zen Buddhist monk. And I remember thinking, that's what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> was, it, <laughs> was it the stillness or the hat? <laughs> well, that's you know the eternal question. You know, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's your koan for me. What is it? Is it the stillness of the hat? So probably you, both. <laughs> you went. Uh, who did you study with? So I studied. My first, you know, teacher was a karate teacher, and when I was eleven, and I, one of the things that we used to do was to sit in seiza, which is your legs underneath yourself on this wood floor for 20 minutes before we moved. And he was a Zen guy and I was 11 years old and we used to sit there sweating, sweating, sweating. And he used to say, you know, you will never be able to be free until you can be completely still. And I remember thinking I was learning how to be a superhero. (laughs) (laughs) And so he really was my, that teaching of freedom through stillness it remains one of my most important teachings. And then when I was 17, I met my first formal Zen teacher, who was John Dadolori, and mm. he was an amazing teacher. And then for many years, I studied with Enki O'Hara, and now I study with Dorothy Diane Friedman, who's a most loving, amazing teacher and she was a made a teacher by her teacher who was peter matheson and so so it's quite a interesting yeah right interesting lineage you've you've created for yourself there all right well thank you i mean i i had i started with philip kaplow for 20 minutes and then i moved on to (laughs) joshu sasaki roshi and i was in his orbit for uh, I don't know, almost 10 years. And then I switched to one of his students, uh, a German woman, Geshen Roshi. And, and I, she had centers all over the United States and Europe. And so I would sit at her places. And mm-hmm. she died very young from cancer, but I managed to see her periodically while she was, a vis- when she was visiting the different centers. So, all right. Well, I, I thought that was just a nice way to start. People know where, where you're coming from. Let's Let's shift topic onto the book itself. Okay. In the beginning of the book, you lay out the book's primary focus, and I'm just going to quote a sentence from you. This is what this book is about, reversing our isolation by coming to know the emotional patterns that keep us trapped in our own heads and learning how to be in relationship again. And you, close quote, and you seem to call this disconnect uh, zombie land. So, so help us understand that, that we're all in a sense, the walking dead. So, so what are these emotional patterns that keep us trapped in our heads and how do we get rebirthed out of our zombieism? Well, it's such an important thing. I mean, I just, we, our center is here on 23rd street. And so one of the best ways I can describe it, I just had to go to the bank before earlier today and almost everyone walking down the street is on their screens. And so the people are walking down the street and now people more than ever colliding into each other. 
because they're just kind of in their faces. If you look at people's faces when they're looking into their screen, there's just this blankness. And so zombie land is really, you know, zombies originally come from the expression that meant orphan children. So it's like children without any kind of direction and or parents. And what I see is that we are moving into this individualistic society more and more and more. And the emotional pattern of fear of relationship, you know, there was a study done two years ago where incoming freshmen were asked about what they fear most about going to college. And the number one answer was talking to people. And so we see the emotional pattern is of isolation and that we're more interested in looking at a screen than learning how to put down the screen and look at who's in front of us and engage them. And it was amazing this afternoon walking across the avenue and I saw this woman who was also walking across the street, except we were both there. And we just looked at each other and smiled. And it's this very ordinary, sweet exchange. Nothing really happened, but we, it's almost like we recognize who else is actually where they are. And, and you did that without taking a selfie and putting it on Instagram? <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it's... I mean, it's really startling. I mean, with the suicide rates and teenagers spiking, as well as, you know, police officers, as well as now in New York City, taxi drivers and physicians. I mean, it's all of these service-oriented professions, but these people who have so much pressure on their hands are going home and don't have the people and the kinds of relationships that actually support them because we're all so distracted. And so the social fabric has really decayed. So do you, blame is probably too strong a word, but that's what's come to mind. Do you blame it on the technology or is this an underlying, the sphere of really connecting with others? Do you think that there's an underlying fear of connection and the screens allow us to acquiesce to that fear? Or do you think the technology actually created the fear itself? That's a great question. And my sense is through practice, just knowing my own mind is that I was very distracted for a very, very long time. Like I thought I was like really good at meditation for a while, but I was really just always trying to do things right. And I was found that I was distracting myself, even in meditation with thoughts and fantasies and feelings and all sorts of indulgences. I mean, the brain is creating like a hundred thoughts per second and we're aware of one or two of them. So I think that the technology is just a tool that allows us to stay distracted. It's Mm. like a convenience in a way, but I think it's our fear and it's kind of goes back to that story with my karate teacher where like really learning how to be still. 
And I yeah. think that we, we don't learn that. Right. I mean, we don't, I don't know how comfortable that is for people right. to be still. I remember once I was sitting uh, with a Zen master in Toronto at some conference. He was one of the presenters and, and we were sitting in meditation. And afterwards he came over and he said, you sit like mountain. And I thought that was it. Oh man, have I made it now? <laughs> I sit like mountain. You know, I don't, I don't know what that is in Japanese, but I want that to be my Japanese name and my Buddhist name, you know, and, and then every session we have with the guy, I didn't, I, I was completely distracted. Am I a mountain? Is this how a mountain sits? You know, I was obsessed with the whole mountain idea. So yeah, we, it, it's so easy to, you know, to, to, catch us in, in, in these different things. The way out that you present in wholehearted, mm -hmm. if I'm getting it right, sort of rests on the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. Mm -hmm. And as I remember them, they are about cultivating, you know, the, sort of cultivating being a Bodhisattva <clears throat> oneself. So can you unpack that for us? What does that mean? And do you think those are is it too Buddhist for, for most readers, or it doesn't matter? Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Well, I think that, well, two things. I think that one of the reasons I wrote the book the way I did is that my target audience was my mother. And <laughs> who's like a total mensch, which is like the Jewish word for bodhisattva. And she's kind of a little bit curious about Buddhism, but doesn't really understand it. And what she got out of the book, which was amazing, was that, wow, I really have to learn how to get close to what I value really root it in my experience so that I can widen out in my relationships. I mean, that's what she said. It was amazing. And so to me, the Bodhisattva precepts are just a way that anyone can use to really get in touch with our core values so that we can actually be more in relationship, like to look at, wow, I'm not I'm stealing from this moment. I'm not even present to the moment. And I'm, it's so greedy of me. And how do I just, without shame or blame, come back to say, oh, yeah, we do that. And I can come back and say, hello, Rabbi, how are you? you know? mm. And so to me, it's also the practice of beginning again. And as I often tell my students, you know, just to learn how to be dumb and dumber. <laughs> beginner's mind i guess or even pre-beginner's pre mind so i hope i hope you are grateful that your mom actually read your book I, i've written 36 books my mother hasn't written this read a single one of them so 
uh, you should you should write her a thank you note or send her an email or give her a kiss, whatever is appropriate. When 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 you go through the book and you've got the sixteen things, but you also seem to um, not reduce it, but consolidate it into three themes that I want you to unpack for us. One is paying attention. Second one is being of service. And the third one is intimacy. So tell us a little bit more about what you have in mind on, on each of those. Yeah. So paying attention is just saying like, wow, I'm here. And when we're paying attention, actually not in my experience, nothing is boring because then suddenly everything matters if we're paying attention. Like right now I'm sitting in a little room and I can notice all these things that happen when I just walk into the room, I don't notice. Or I can feel the care that the person who was last here took to leave this room. You can feel it and see and how everything is arranged. And For me, that's the starting place of interest and the, of possibility. And from there, we can wonder, what else? And from there, we can think about, wow, how do I really offer that kind of attention to how you're asking me this question? And then how, for me, then service naturally flows from these things about like, wow, how can I serve this moment? Do you need a sandwich? Are you, should we just sit quietly together? Should we look up at the sky together or whatever it is? Or listen, oh, I actually am feeling your sadness right now. And I'm wondering about your sadness. And so to me, it's just about, it starts with paying attention and eventually moves into service because we're just aware and we're rooted in our experience and widening out into what is possible. It's so exciting. For me, living in this kind of way is like living an adventure. Mm. I get the sense that when someone says they're bored, they're not paying attention. That you, I mean, it's what you said. If you're really paying attention, the only response is, wow, not like, oh, I'm bored. And, and I think when we take refuge in the screen world, it's because we're bored, but we're bored because we're not paying attention to the real world. So we take refuge in Zombieland. Exactly. So, so this paying attention is really key. And the way you explain being of service seem to also explain the notion of intimacy. And that brings us back to where you started, that people are afraid to talk to one another, afraid to have that kind of contact. You're crossing a busy Manhattan street and there's just one other person on the crosswalk who's not lost in zombie land. And then there's this connection and that, that you know, the moment of wow, or maybe what Uber might call I thou, that real connection of, of two manifestings of the singular reality. So. Right. Oh, I just wanted to say, you know, to me lately, I've been thinking about intimacy as taking responsibility. And what I mean by that is if I realize I'm, wow, I'm really responsible for how I'm thinking. 
and what thoughts I'm returning to, or if I can come back to the freshness of the moment. And if I can take that responsibility, that's how I was able to see that woman. And so to me, it was like an, an intimate moment of like, oh, hello. And I can remember her face completely because mm -hmm. we were both there. And so to me, it's like these everyday moments of intimacy. And it reminds me a little bit of when I used to work in an emergency room and how often I would hear from people, oh, you know, when I left that, I wish I'd left the house and told the person I loved them. There's so much regret when people are afraid that they're gonna, that this is it. And so to me, how do you use that fear of this is it to actually wake up and take responsibility and say like, wow. So you're practicing Zazen every day. So you're doing yes. Zen meditation. For, for the vast majority of people who are listening to this who are not practicing Zazen or maybe any kind of meditation, mm -hmm. is there something people can do to bring them into the state of paying attention, being of service and intimacy? Yeah. So to me, one of the questions I like a lot is what's actually happening right now? Like just asking yourself that question, what's actually happening right now? Or if you're getting caught in a feeling saying, what else am I feeling? So for example, I was just talking to someone who was saying, oh, I feel so sad in my life right now. I said, well, what else are you feeling in this moment? And they thought, and they paused and they said, well, actually, I feel kind of good. And so these ways of paying attention to me are not exclusive to meditators. It's about how do you get curious about what's actually happening and enjoy what's happening. But that's a practical thing to do throughout the day to just ask totally. yourself what is happening right now inside right. myself, outside myself, between me and the world around me. That, that's a, a really, that's a practice. And I think that's a perfect way to end this conversation. Our guest today, Sensei Koshin Paley Ellison, is the author of Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, Wake Up. You can learn more about his work and the work of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care at zencare.org. Sensei Koshin, thank you for talking to us on Essential Conversations. A total pleasure. You're a mensch too. <laughs> and you're a bodhisattva also. <laughs> Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like the show, I urge you to check out my new podcast, Conversations on the Edge, brought to you by the One River Foundation. Conversations on the Edge features a variety of iconoclasts, apostates, and freethinkers who are trying to change the world for the better. Also, please be sure to rate and review this podcast in iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our executive producer is Ben Nussbaum. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.
Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on The Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.